calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 174. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, Free Falling. Pelicans and pigeons, dragonflies and bumblebees. Yeah, insects and birds are the obvious lucky bastards with flight ability, but it doesn't just stop there, does it? No, all sorts of diverse creatures and various phylum and families can fly. Even reptiles had a shot at it, back in the day with pterodactyls, and today with the gliding snakes and flying dragon lizards of Indonesia. And then, then there's the flying fish. Fish? Come on! There's even a freaking flying squirrel. Undeniable proof that there is a god, and he's a total asshole. We never got a shot at having wings, folks. We weren't invited to the party. It's like us, starfish, and bears playing D&D in the basement of Worm's house on a Saturday night, drinking strawberry yoo-hoo, and talking shit about all the pretty popular winged species invited to Sarah Tuckerman's wild party. Her parents are out of town for the winter, and apparently a bunch of fruit bat frat boys from State College are coming over with some peach mango schnapps and a kegger of Mike's raspberry. Damn, this is some good lemonade. Oh, yeah. So I was like, ew, I totally have wings. Lobster. Hey, guys, who invited the emperor penguin? (laughs) Hey, penguin, nice tux, man. Why don't you go smoke your little cigar outside? He's got an M16! And a belt of grenades! And a bowie knife! Dear God, what are you? 
Your worst nightmare, punks. Don't get me confused. Don't touch it, used to. It's not a new blood from the south that you lose to. Talking not cruise through your hood. It's all good. Chop it in the back. Tell me where the hate is at. We've got total wing envy. Mankind's passionate yearning to fly can be traced all the way back to the very first person ever to fall to their death from someplace high. Sure, we build things that take us off the ground, but come on, it's not the same. We can't fly, we can't glide, we can't even float. We just fall. And that leads us into this week's Drabble story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, a worthy and fun undertaking. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called A Drop's Descent, and it comes to us from Carter Allen. Carter is currently a high school senior at a small alternative school in Seattle, Washington, called The Nova Project. At school, he enjoys playing Ultimate Frisbee, and he's a writer and publisher for his school's online newspaper. He likes playing D&D with starfish and bears, participating in flash mobs, and reading horror and science fiction. This is his first ever Drabble. As the drop of water fell, it remembered. It remembered when it was carried in the cottony clouds, drifting weightlessly in the sky. It recalled letting go, freezing, then landing softly on the peak of a mountain to rest. The drop recollected the day it melted, roaring down the mountainside, splashing against rocks, flying off waterfalls. It remembered flowing into a lake, being sucked down an underground pipe and stored in a tank, then up through a tube and into a pail. As it fell, it remembered that great adventure. But now, it was just a drop in a bucket. Well, our feature story this week is The Fantasy Jumper by Will McIntosh. A nominee for both the Nebula and Hugo Awards this year, Will McIntosh's work has appeared in Asimov's, where he won the 2010 Reader's Award for Short Story, Science Fiction, Best of the Year 2008 and 2009, Strange Horizons, Unplugged, The Year's Best Online Fiction 2009, and many other venues. In 2005, his story Soft Apocalypse was nominated for both the British Science Fiction Association and the British Fantasy Society Awards for Best Short Story. Will is a psychology professor in the southeastern U.S. He became the father of twins in 2008. Returning to read for you folks for the second time here on the Drabblecast is Naomi Mercer. Naomi's a singer, actor, and professional voiceover artist. She's done work for Lockheed Martin, Virgin Mobile, BMW, and she's the voice for GeoBeats at Vimeo.com and CodeBaby at CodeBaby.com, not to mention four characters in the video game Mass Effect 2. Check her out at NaomiMercer.com. All right, folks, without further ado, we bring you The Fantasy Jumper by Will McIntosh. Rando passed his wrist over the credit eye on the Fantasy Jumper kiosk. The darkened window flashed to life, revealing a full-length, three-dimensional image of a young woman with pale, perfect skin lightly dusted with freckles. This is the one I wanted to show you, Rando said to his blind date Maya, who had an artificial eye that drooped slightly, but otherwise was very cute in a chipmunk sort of a way. Make her blonde, Rando said, while Maya peered over his shoulder. 
The woman's hair changed from brown to golden blonde. Old-fashioned romance dress. It hurt to talk because Rando had accidentally bitten the inside of his cheek while eating oysters at the underwater restaurant. The woman's simple white shift morphed into a flowing mint cream gown with a diving bust line, like on the covers of the books Rando's elderly mother read. Big pointy dunce hat, Rando said laughing, and the woman was suddenly wearing an oversized red cone with dunce printed top to bottom in plain black letters. Finished, Rando said to the kiosk, simultaneously puffing his cheek to keep the wound from rubbing against his molar. The window glided up and the woman stepped out. This time, maybe I'll reach the fountain, she said. She turned and leapt off the roof. Maya gasped. They leaned over the short wall and watched her plummet, her dress billowing, arms spread wide. Isn't that something? Rando said. The woman seemed to fall for a long time. Rando stared, rapt. Finally, she hit the ground. Her head bounced violently and then she lay motionless. The dunce hat, which had come loose during the fall, clunked to the ground a few feet away from her. A wide swatch of blood blossomed on the pavement around her head. People on a pedestrian that wound past the fountain pointed, their words indecipherable. Then they seemed to recognize that the woman was not a real woman and went back to their conversations. Rando looked at Maya. Isn't that something? Watch this, watch this, Rando said, pointing down at the broken body. The pavement under the body slid open until the body dropped out of sight. Then it returned to its original flat gray. Let's try it again, Rando said, sweeping the credit eye a second time. Can you do that movie star, Ellie, what's her name? I only have copyright permission to simulate three celebrities. Cotton McHugh, Jim Hinderer, and Lena Savarani, the woman behind the glass said listlessly. Those all suck, Rando said. What about a little kid? Age? Five. The woman became a five-year-old girl, cute as a button, but with the same haunted gray eyes. Finished, Rando said. The little girl stepped out. This time, maybe I'll reach the fountain, she said. Her tiny legs scrambled and churned until she finally cleared the low wall. She jumped, tumbling head over feet once, twice, before slamming to the pavement. He glanced at Maya again. She looked a little distracted, like she wasn't having a very good time. She was so cute. Rando imagined what it would be like to arrive for Thanksgiving dinner holding Maya's hand. Hey, I have an idea, he said. He held up a picture of his mother for the kiosk to scan. This is gonna be hilarious. When he'd finished watching his mother fall, he turned to find that Maya was nowhere in sight. Maya? He called, but he got no answer. He headed off to look for her. Violet and Chloe wandered the roof, holding hands. Violet was an egret of a woman, tall and skinny. Her head bobbed when she walked, one bob for each step. Chloe had a ruddy red face and a habit of waggling her finger when she talked, as if we're trying to write what she said in the air. They took turns looking out at the park through a telescopic viewfinder that could focus on one square of a waffle cone held by a child in line to see the concrete mermaid, if you wanted it to. The view was spectacular. The fair stretched nearly to the horizon, a cacophony of brilliant shapes and colors snaked by long lines of wide-eyed patrons. 
They walked on, pausing to watch three teenage boys create a haggard-looking middle-aged woman who said something about the fountain and then startled them both by leaping off the roof. They continued. An old woman with thick ankles ringed by plump purple veins sat at the memory kiosk. On the view screen, a young girl, Violet assumed it was the old woman in her youth, swatted yellow jackets off a younger boy, her brother, who was covered with them. He was screaming, his skin already mottled by lumps with angry red centers. One of the wasps landed on the girl's cheek and stung her. She cried in pain but kept swatting at the bees that swarmed the boy. What a gruesome story to record, Chloe said. Maybe she wants to show her family what a brave girl she was. Violet let go of Chloe's hand to wipe her palm on her hip, then reached to retrieve it, but Chloe had folded her arms across her chest. At the dream kiosk, they watched what they had dreamed the night before. Violet dreamed that Chinese people were painting graffiti all over her body. Chloe dreamed that she was pinned by a tangle of electrical cords connected to life support systems. She had to unplug them to free herself. Look at this one, Violet said, scampering ahead. Lie detector spectacles. She scanned the credit eye. The specs popped out on a stock, oversized with black frames. Violet pressed her face to them, eyeing Chloe through a haze of smudges. How old are you? Violet asked. Fourteen. A burst of indecipherable readouts lit up on Violet's peripheral vision. Then the word lie in bright red. Violet clapped, delighted. <laughs> Do you watch too much television? Yes. Truth. Who do you think is better looking, you or me? Violet said. Chloe smirked, shook her head. Come on now, who's better looking? You, she finally answered. Lie. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. I always thought you had a bit of a narcissistic streak. It's my turn, Chloe said, stepping out of the spectacles gaze and tugging Violet by her sweater. Do you hate my mother? <laughs> Of course not, Violet said. Chloe pulled her face away from the spectacles, looked at Violet, and nodded her head. Yes, you do. No, I don't, Violet protested. Have you ever looked at my personal memory videos when I was out of the house? N no. Violet and Chloe took turns hurling questions, progressing from tickling to pricking to ripping flesh from the bone. Do you find my breasts too small? What really happened after I passed out the night we snorted Godflash with Jenna? Then, a question burst from Violet unbidden, as if leaping out of a black hole. Do you love me? What? Chloe said. You heard me! Chloe shifted from one foot to the other, looked toward the horizon where the wonders of the park continued to shimmer and spin. No, she said. Truth said the spectacles. Violet sank to the floor. A rushing filled her ears as if they were flooding with water. She stared at Chloe, waiting for Chloe to take it back or qualify it or denounce the kiosk a liar. I'm sorry, Chloe said. I should have told you sooner, but I couldn't figure out how. Violet stared. She was having one of those disembodied moments when every word Every moment feels like an echo instead of something happening new. I should go. Chloe turned and then paused. Violet's heart leapt. Chloe reached behind her neck with both hands, unclasped the vow necklace Violet had given her, and put it in Violet's lap 
when Violet didn't hold out a hand to take it. Abbott was fat, and he walked like a duck. His splayed footsteps were silent on the hard, polished floor. No one paid him much attention as he approached the fantasy jumper kiosk, a glistening rectangle trimmed in silver and chrome. He swept his wrist across the kiosk's credit eye and the young woman appeared. No alterations, default model. Always the same expression when she emerged, serene on the surface, but undertones of restless longing. Immediately, she turned toward the low wall. This time, maybe I'll reach the fountain. Wait, not yet, Abbott said. The woman gazed out for a moment, focused not on the wonders spread out before her, but on the empty air between her and those wonders, the middle distance. Reluctantly, she turned back. It breaks my heart that you're created only to die scant moments later. Such a waste. The woman opened her mouth to tell him that she didn't understand what he meant, that she had been created for falling and dying, for ecstasy and agony, but realized that saying it would only draw him into conversation, only delay her. The joy of the fall and the horror of the pavement beckoned. Thank you, she said instead. I fell asleep at my workstation yesterday, Abbott said. When I woke up, I discovered I'd inadvertently laid my head on my keyboard, primarily on the K key. Bits of foam formed on his lips as he spoke. When I woke, my screen was filled with Ks. It took me hours to delete them all. The woman glanced over her shoulder. Rays of sunshine painted the dust and dandelion blooms swirling in the space she longed to fill. She could be out there with them now. She could pass through those bands of light, create a draft that sucked dust and dandelion blooms after her. I've kept the tags from all my clothing since I was a boy, so I can track the changes in my body. I keep the tags in a brown chest. <laughs> he watched her face carefully, searching for some reaction. I have to go now, she said, leaning on her right foot, the one she would step with first. Please let me go. Please, talk to me a while, he said. Why don't you talk to one of the women from the sex kiosk? They only want to have sex. They don't want to talk. No one wants to talk. He kicked at the bottle top, lying prongs up on the ground, but missed. Are you the same each time? He asked. Or are you a new one each time? I don't know. Why do you want to reach the fountain so badly? I don't know. I imagine I was made that way. It would be so wonderful to hit the water, to feel it all around me, pouring into my throat and ears. Your wishes are so simple, Abbott said. Mine are so complicated. I'm not even sure what all of them are. She didn't say anything, just looked at him with desperate eyes. He nodded glumly. Okay, go, if that's what you want. This time, I'm going to reach the fountain. You'll never reach it, you know. It's much too far. Her artificial heart pounding in anticipation and terror, craving the fall but dreading the pain, she planted the arch of her foot against the edge of the low wall and catapulted herself into the air, arms spread wide, gaze fixed past the wide gray expanse of the pavement to the shallow ripple and spray of blue-white water beyond. She flew horizontally first, feeling the thrill of weightlessness and anticipation, the potential represented by the space between her body and the ground. Then, she fell, gaining speed. Her long chestnut hair snapped in the wind. Her cheeks puffed as air rushed into her half-open mouth. Too soon, all at once. <laughs>
it was over. She lay, staring at a red and white popsicle wrapper lying by her nose for one last agonizing heartbeat. Then she died. Still clutching Chloe's vow necklace in her sweaty palm, Violet watched the earnest fat man talk to the fantasy jumper, and then watched the fantasy jumper leap. Part of Violet wanted to follow the jumper, to be free of her sadness, and, maybe even more importantly, to saddle Chloe with a lifetime of guilt and remorse. But there was bound to be a safety field around the roof to stop anyone but the fantasy jumper from jumping. The fat man waddled away, without even watching the fantasy jumper hit the ground. Violet went to the edge to look at the fantasy jumper's body. It was already gone. A jolt went through her. Chloe was walking on the pedestrian below. She must have stopped in the bathroom. Violet hoped she'd stop to cry. Violet turned away, absently caressed the brass piping of the fantasy jumper's kiosk. She looked at her reflection in the window, at her two small breasts and her beak nose. A wonderful idea occurred to her. She swept her bony wrist over the credit eye and the window came to life. Just like me. Exactly like me. She ordered, and in an instant, it was as if she were looking at her reflection again. Come, Violet said. The window raised and the fantasy jumper stepped out. This time I'll reach the fountain, she said. Wait, Violet said, holding out an arm to block the fantasy jumper from the wall. Chloe was still 50 meters from the fountain. Violet had to time it just right. She fastened Chloe's vow necklace around the fantasy jumper's neck, instructed the jumper to wait for her signal, then hurried to the telescopic viewer and focused it on Chloe. She wanted to see Chloe's face. Get ready, Violet said as Chloe approached. Now! Violet felt a slight breeze as the fantasy jumper passed. Silently, she counted to three, figuring it would take that long for the fantasy jumper to land. Chloe's hands flew to her open mouth, her eyes widened with recognition. Then, for an instant, Chloe smiled. It was a fleeting half-smile, quickly masked by a faux shock. But Violet saw it. She was sure of it. Even at the World's Fair, it's possible to trick someone, to convince them that the fantasy jumper is someone they know, someone they once loved. But only for an instant. Only for that first primordial moment before the higher faculties caught up and reminded them of where they were. Chloe looked up, realizing what Violet had done. Was she disappointed that it was only a trick? Probably. Violet screamed in rage. She shoved the telescopic viewer into a spin and stormed back to the fantasy jumper kiosk. She made another Violet jumper and sent it over the wall. Then she made another, and another, they vaulted over the wall, slammed to the concrete below, one after another. This is how much pain I feel! She screamed at Chloe as she swept her wrist over the eye yet again. These are my wounds! She howled, her wrist a blur. Like a movie caught in a loop, the fantasy jumpers leapt, one after another, spattering blood and chips of artificial bone, screaming in agony, writhing as they died. The ground became littered with them as they piled up faster than the ground could absorb them. One jumper landed atop another, her spine snapping with an audible crack. Still more followed. A pile formed. A jumper dragged herself out of the pile, her legs shattered, 
her torn scalp exposing a ragged quilt of stringy fibers, but her arms and back intact. Chloe screamed when she saw the violet-shaped jumper dragging itself toward her, gasping in pain, tears pouring down its cheeks. She backed up to the edge of the fountain and then scurried around it. Slowly, awkwardly, the jumper dragged itself, its eyes fixed on the sparkling fountain. The tattering of the water spilling down upon itself drowned out all other sound. Finally, she reached the edge, clawed her way over the marble lip, and plunged into the cool water. A billion stars exploded in her mind. On the roof, the latest violet jumper paused, stared down at the fountain in disbelief. I did it, she said. Jump, Violet cried. Why don't you jump? The jumper shook her head. There's no need. Violet followed the jumper's gaze, saw her skinny self floating face down in the fountain. She laughed bitterly. <laughs> At least somebody got what they wanted. Violet headed for the stairs, oblivious to the open-mouthed stares of the onlookers gathered on the roof. Rando passed Violet on the stairs on his way back up to the roof. He was hoping Maya had returned there to wait for him. The roof was silent and nearly empty. The fantasy jumper looked out over the park, unmoving. The undertones of restless longing were gone from her face. She looked as if she might stand there forever. Would you care for a cup of tea? Abbott asked her. I don't drink tea, the fantasy jumper said. Uh, perhaps a conversation. I don't know. He took her hand, led her toward the stairs. Every so often, I like to empty out all of my drawers and put everything in a pile, he said as they left the roof. Well, that was our story. Hope it inspired, empowered, and entertained you. If it did, hey, why not go ahead and knock this out early this week? Chuck us a donation to help us keep going. Five bucks a month or ten bucks a month, automatic subscriptions can be set up from links on our website, Drabblecast.org, if you find yourself loving the Drabblecast week to week and want to keep it going. Or you can just donate once. We honestly appreciate any amount you can give. But we honestly appreciate it more when you can give a lot. Hey, just being honest. For example, we're quite fond of Sherry Weller, this week's kick-ass donor of the week. Sherry goes by Moon Owl on the Drabblecast forums, and in addition to helping the show out financially, she knit me a Mongolian deathworm plushie, and I freaking love it. There's a photo of that posted in our discussion forums for you folks at home to see. She's a graduate from Drexel High School of Information Technology, and now works at a major university where she makes computers do her bidding and keeps the bad guys from getting all your dirty little secrets. She lives in lovely West Philadelphia with her husband, Flint, and obligatory cat, Darwin, where her small, historic 1920s row house is filled to the brim with an incongruent collection of guitars, spinning wheels, and yarn. Thanks, Sherry. We love you. And I also love this week's winning story in our ongoing 100-character Twobble Story Contest, this week by Twitfic Master Muncie. 
looking at the field of broken bodies and torn robes, I understood. When it came to clans, Wu-Tang beat Klu Klux every time. Indeed they do. Indeed they do. So, hey, that's our show. Remember that it's produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but share it all you like. And now you can even download the MP3 file of each episode directly from our main site, travelcast.org. Exciting. Special thanks to our badass episode artist this week, Elon Trinidad. Elon's been nominated for a Will Eisner Comic Book Industry Award for Best Webcomic, and he was an animator on The Simpsons for a while. Currently, he's working on a sci-fi webcomic where a certain animation or theme park corporation owns the intellectual property of God. That's at theoryofeverythingcomics.com. Oh, and every once in a while, he wrangles giant puppet men at rayrayworld.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Doing something a little special, something to be excited about. Stay tuned. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, ooh, oh my god, I have wings, lobster. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.